In the new book, Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Physician Leaders, 32 women physician leaders share their career paths with the goal of improving the trajectory of the women in medicine. We talked today with Teresa Rohr Kirchgraber, MD, MPH, the current AMWA, American Medical Women's Association's president and professor of medicine at Augusta University, University of Georgia Medical Partnership, and Dr. Deborah M. Schlien, the book editor and author and AMWA leader. Dr. Schlien is also CEO of Schlien Associates, an executive physician search and medical management consulting firm. We talk about how Dr. Schlien came to write the book as she typically writes medical thrillers, why women are underrepresented in leadership positions, even though when I graduated over 15 years ago, there were more women than men in the class, how to reduce institutional barriers, how COVID affected women leaders, and how AMWA is addressing the need for more women physicians in leadership roles. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, Dr. where I got a great Dr. rate Teresa on a physician Rora, mortgage and was so eligible for, for no money down and no PMI, so I could make Pleasure. new memories in my Thank own home. So Laurel Road for really Doctors, banking insights and so benefits Dr. uniquely Schlein, designed we'll for you. doctors. Because See LaurelRoad.com slash Dr. Home for full um, terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of key banking and equal housing This is not your typical genre, right? You typically write... Um, medical thrillers, and now you wrote learned uh, lessons learned stories from women physician leaders. So, so how did you come to write this book? Okay, well, actually, ten years ago, the American College of Physician Executives, which is now the American Association for Physician Leaders, asked me to update a monograph that I had written in 1995, which was called. Uh, Women in Medical Management, a mentoring guide. Very skinny little book. I don't know if it's worth showing you, but this was it, thin. And um, at the time, in 1995, only about 19% of uh, practicing physicians were women. And so as you might imagine, it was very difficult to find even representative women who are in low-level uh, management positions or mid-management, and very few in senior management positions. But as you said, I like to write fiction. I love the narrative form. I think people tend to remember stories more than they remember uh, data. So I researched until I found 17 representative women, and I asked them to write their personal stories, how they decided to become doctors, how they transitioned to uh, management, what kinds of, no matter what level of position they were in, what were some of the obstacles and challenges that they had to face um, as they moved on in their careers. And what was interesting was that um, to a person, none of them, at least none of that original group, had thought about leadership. They were, it, was, it was an unplanned kind of, uh, of thing. And uh, none of them had really found very good mentors or role models, but all of them felt there was a very thick glass ceiling that was, was uh, contributing to their not being able to move farther ahead. So when I, was, uh, when I agreed to update this monograph in 2012, this, this project started in 1995, um, I uh, thought that the situation was going to be much better because at this point, women were now 30% of practicing physicians. There were many more medical schools that had, had admitted uh, more women. In fact, my alma mater had about 50% of, of girls in the class. 
And um, so I expected the situation to be much, you know, much more um, positive. Unfortunately, as I researched the latest statistics for that book, I discovered that uh, women physicians were still underrepresented and underutilized in positions of power, especially at the most senior level. And no more than about 16% of any of the top leadership roles in any area of healthcare were held by women doctors. So what was interesting at that time was that um, Deborah Spar, who was the um, uh, president of, of uh, Barnard College, talked about a 16% ghetto. She looked across all uh, uh, fields, you know, not just medicine. She was looking at uh, Fortune 500 companies, aerospace, education uh, programs. Um, let's see, I was trying to think, Hosp uh, not hospitals, um, Hollywood and politics. And there were no more than 60% women in leadership roles at that time. So medicine was no different. So for that updated book, that was 2012, I repeated the same format. And I looked to the original group and 10 of them agreed to continue to tell their stories. And I found 14 additional women. Many of those group had moved more to, to more, uh, I would say more mid-management roles. And I asked them again to write their stories. And that book was called Lessons Learned, Stories from Women in Medical Management. And in it, these women shared their career paths. But again, on this book, I asked them to talk more about how they balance their personal and professional lives, because that was getting to be a much more interesting issue in 2012 for all kinds of, of uh, roles for women. So now it's 26 years later, after the original monograph and a decade after that uh, first update, and the American Association for Physician Leadership called me, this was right before COVID started, and they said, well, where are these women now? What are they doing? Um, and have they made it yet? Which was actually a question that the, um, the woman who was actually the president of AMWA at the time had written in the foreword, are we there yet? So I went back to the original, to the 24 women, and I said, would you be interested in, in um, telling you know, your stories and, move, and what, where you are now? And 23 of them said, yeah, that would really be great. They really felt that they were at a place in their careers where they wanted to be role models. And so um, I, I included those women, and then I found seven additional women who um, had moved into more senior roles. And then I added two young women, two women who were in medical school. One was in medical school. She's now a resident uh, at University of Michigan and a um, second year resident who is now a senior. She's chief resident in Tampa. And I asked them to write their stories because both of these girls had gone to um, had done leadership training during medical school. That's something that's been that's something that's new that I'm happy to see. Some medical schools are starting to do uh, leadership training within the, their medical school program. And so I wanted to see what their aspirations were because they, both of them were talking about leadership roles even as early as uh, before they actually graduated med school. So um, as I said, 10 of the original groups, so we have, we have 1995, it's sort of like a Framingham study. We can see that how those 10 women did, the, 20, the 14 women from 2012, and now we have 33 women, including Teresa, who's been wonderful about writing a, a very nice foreword for the book. And again, they tell their personal stories. And um, I think the book has turned out to be really quite interesting because um, these women have, have been very successful in lots of areas of medicine, including corporate medical directors, managed care executives, managed, uh, managers within government, the pharmaceutical industry, academic leaders, hospital executives, consultants, even coaches and um, and entrepreneurs. So that's that's how I came to write this book. So one of the things that you mentioned is that you know 26 years ago when you originally wrote Women in Medical Management, 
um, the medical school classes at that point had already flipped and, and, and many of them were more women than men. And my medical school, I, I, I'm now 20 years since I started medical school and my class was like 55% women, 45% men. And, and, but you said that we're still not seeing as many women in leadership positions as you would think with, with that, uh, with the high number, you know, the, with the ratio flipping even that long ago. So, so, um, Teresa, we'll start with you. What, what do you think some of the reasons are that, that are keeping women physicians from leadership roles? Oh my gosh. There's so, there are so many, and it's like every day we kind of think about this and struggle with it and look and, and promote. It's not just a pipeline issue because as you've said, when I was in medical school 30 some odd years ago, we were 30% of the class. We're not 30% of anything right now. We're not 30% of the chairs. We're not 30% of the deans. We're not 30%. So it isn't just about the pipeline. It's about what keeps us in medicine, what keeps us practicing, what keeps us doing the, the career that we loved and we trained so hard to do. Well, we could talk probably more so about what makes us leave. You know, there was a study just recently that, that the uh, AAMC helped to um, promote or, or discuss that showed that 40% of women physicians either leave the practice of medicine or go to part-time within six years of completing training. That, that, that's huge. If we're 50% of the class and 40% are gonna be leaving or going down to part-time within six years of completing training. Well, so we know that there are a number of things. One, work life. When you don't have adequate childcare, when you have the guilt of not having appropriate daycare, I mean, all those kinds of things definitely come into play, but you add into that the inequities that occur in your workplace. When you look around and you realize, no, wait a minute, I'm, I'm making less than, than that guy, like why? Or that my overhead is the same as that person, when I'm writing my own notes, I'm typing them all up myself, you know, I don't have a transcription service. And how come they get like two medical assistants whenever they see their patients and I gotta like go in the hallway and yell and scream for one. I mean, there's so many different ways in which those inequities kind of get to you. I had a, a colleague just recently tell me about her, her colleague who just came back from a six-week maternity leave. Okay, six weeks, you know, not bad. But she wanted some time to pump. So they said, sure, sure, you can have that time to pump for, for breastfeeding, but you've got to come in 30 minutes earlier and leave 30 minutes later in order to make that up. I mean, seriously, this is a, a new mom with a you know, six-week-old at home, and she's going to spend even more time away from that, that child. So I, I don't think that we have developed great institutional systematic changes that allow for women to be successful in the workplace as well as being successful in the home life. So, I mean, there, there's so many different avenues that we can kind of go and think about in terms of how to keep promoting. Another huge area and you know, Deb, you jump in too, is the fact that some women do take off a little bit of time, okay. But as a physician, how do you get back in? I mean, what's our what's our reentry program? Where are they? How do we do that? I mean, maybe we do want to go down for a short period of time to spend more time doing other activities. But once you're away from the clinical practice for a little bit, how do you how do you get back in? We don't have those kinds of 
structured programs for people to be able to you know get back up to speed right yeah can i add uh, that particularly in academia this is a big problem particularly when women are taking time off to have children they're being penalized because they're not as productive in terms of their research and that's been a big issue and actually we're seeing that in fact women are doing are getting less promotions today as as uh uh, full professors and tenured professors and and certainly deans of medical schools. So if, if you have a listener who's in a position of authority, right, and um, they're looking to make some institutional changes, what are those what are those barriers and what are those changes that you'd like to see? Well, so I think, one, for ex oh, go ahead, go ahead. One is we need transparency in terms of salary and and pay. All right. I mean, that, that's like just a no brainer. And, it, and it's not just women. It's also as an older physician, you might have started at, you know, the salary line of 1995 and got your 3% increase every single year. You are making way less than somebody who's just coming out of residency. And that's not that's not right. And it's not fair. So you need to be able to look at across the level and say, you know, what, are, what is our pay scale and make sure that is equitable across the board. I mean, I think that's one of the first things for everybody. Deb? Yeah, that, absolutely. But I also think, for example, when we're talking about academia, there should be an opportunity for you to step back and then get right back in. There should not be any kind of, of uh, you know, you shouldn't be penalized for the, that time that you take, take time off. Um, and certainly there should be more daycare in some of these organizations. That would be nice, certainly to have more maternity, paternal leave even. So perhaps the guys can take more responsibility for some of those things that, that the women seem to be still, even in 2022, doing. Um, you know, so Absolutely. No, I agree with you. Just, just think about it. I mean, it, I'm, I'm at the University of Georgia um, Medical Center complex. But anyway, we only just last summer are state employees now eligible for paid family leave, paid paternity and uh, paid maternal leave. So they get you get three weeks paid if you have a new child, you foster a child or you have a new adoption. But that's it. And, it, and that just came about last summer. Indiana, when I was there, I believe it came into effect in 2017. So up until then, as an employee, you got you got no paid time off for maternity leave. So you saved up all your vacation time and saved up your PTO and all that kind of stuff. But there are a lot of folks who don't have that. And then the penalty, the, the penalty that you get, especially if you are on productivity for, for clinical folks, you know, you have to make up that clinical time that you missed. I mean, right. so you really don't want to be away. So, and, and I don't want it, I don't want this conversation to all just to be about mothering because there's there is that is no question a huge amount of it. But there's also, you know, so much else that kind of comes into play. And it not not every woman physician has kids, you know. So with with that caveat, why aren't there more of us in you know leadership positions? Well, I think one of the problems is that there has been lack of mentors and that we need to really improve that so that women do have mentors and role models. And so that's part of what I, I think that that uh, really was my inspiration for this book was to showcase women who have uh, who ha can serve as role models. And by the way, all of the women in the book have agreed that if they're if someone who reads the book is interested in getting in contact with them, they can certainly contact me and I'm happy to connect them with with uh, any of the women who've been in the book as role models. The other thing is that women still have a confidence gap. I, it's it's amazing how many of the women in this book and I'm now doing, by the way, a book on women in STEM 
her PhDs who are leaders in STEM, every single one of them mentions the imposter syndrome. And I don't know why that is. I don't think it's genetic. I think it's still a cultural thing, but um, we need to have more confidence. Uh, I started a recruiting company at one point after my MBA. And um, I find that when I have a candidate who is perfectly suited for a position, but she's a woman, and I show her the job description, she'll tell me, I, I count the seconds to how many seconds before they tell me why they, you know, they lack some particular skill. When I hand it to a, a I hate to say this, but when I hand it to a male, no matter how much they may lack certain skills, they have no problem with the job description. They're perfect for the role. So there, there really is a difference still, and that has to change. And that's a confidence thing. So is there any, is there a way that, that AMWA is addressing this, I mean, book, clearly is, is going to help to address the, the mentorship issue, but how is AMWA addressing it in, in other ways? So the, the American Medical Women's Association has been around since 1915, and, and it started partly because there were women physicians that needed an opportunity to, to hone their craft. And at that time, you didn't really do a residency. It was more kind of an apprenticeship thing. And so if you couldn't find a physician to work with, you couldn't hone your craft. So it kind of started in that, and that kind of sense of responsibility for the next generation has been persistent all the way through. AMWA currently has some defined leadership programs so that you can be involved in a defined program that you get a certificate at the end. We have one for residents, one for medical students, and one for physicians. But I think beyond that, what it allows for is opportunities to hone your leadership skills by being involved with committees, by, by attending the meetings and meeting people from across the country. I, mean, I know for a fact that it had a huge role in my being promoted to full professor. As a general medicine physician on faculty for years and years, I mean, I, I do a lot of teaching. I love it. But in terms of like, how do I get national prominence, you know, in my own little corner of the world? Well, AMWA gave me that. I started doing talks at AMWA that led to invitations to speak around the country. And when I needed my letters of recommendation for promotion, you have to have somebody who's outside of your realm, who really doesn't know you that well. And if you're a researcher, you could probably find that. But as a, as a you know, clinician educator, it was much harder. But because of the connections and the networking that I had made with AMWA, I was able to reach out to some pretty high-powered folks who were deans and, and full professors and chairs of department. I wouldn't have had that without an organization like this, especially because of the multi-specialty um, focus. Right, Let's I say you're a, a male listener, a physician who's listening to this and who's a male, <laughs> and you want to be uh, an ally, right? He for she. What are some recommendations that you have for our male listeners and how we can be better allies? First of all, I think that there's no reason that mentors can't be males for female physicians. That, you know, I think that's that's very important. You know, there's still sort of a, a, a boys club attitude that, you know, sense that leaders are only are male. I, unfortunately, that still exists. So I think starting to think more broadly that, you know, trying to uh, help to promote women who are talented that you see in your organization is very important. So I, I think being a good mentor is, is probably the first thing I would say. And, and if you are in a position of leadership, guys, if you are in a position of leadership, every time you sit down at the table, I want you to look around. I want you to look and see who's here and just and recognize the faces, recognize the skin tone, and then think, 
how can I change this? You know, one simple thing is it's not uncommon for the more junior folks, if they're in the meeting as well, to sit along the wall, not at the table. No, no, no. They got to bring them up to the table. But then you also have to every committee that you form, look at the makeup. We we had a, a, a physician engagement committee and, you know, the, our physician scores were really low and physicians were unhappy. And so they made this physician engagement committee, right? Oh, my God. It came out 17 white guys, one woman, but everybody was white. Most of them were old, all of them, you know, and, and, and I just kind of thought, and I saw this list and a lot of us women in the organization went a little livid and, and said, <laughs> you know, if you're trying to engage us, you have, you have just like one component and that's it, you know? And so that it should have come to that person's mind as they were putting that committee together and say, yeah, 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 no, you know, we need more diversity in here. And diversity isn't just skin color or sex. Diversity is where do you come from? What kind of medicine do you practice? You know, what's, what's your area of interest? I mean, when you have that different thought process in the room, you get so much more out of the discussion. And I, and I think, you know, the, the studies have shown too, that if, if board, the more diverse boards are in the business world, the better their profitability. Absolutely. No, that's absolutely true. So that's very good advice. I agree. Yeah. yeah. You're marketing towards what you, what you put into it. And so if the, if, if all you're getting input from is from old white men, then that's all you're going to be, yeah, that's all you're going to be helping. That's all you're going to be marketing to. So. Yeah. And, and clearly, you know, it, it's, it's, I think, um, you know, I read that Nobel prize winners are much more likely to speak another language and play a musical instrument and have all these outside interests. And I think that, you know, that's, that's how it helps one person's brain. And it, and it, it helps, it would help in a committee in the same way. You have people with different interests, different backgrounds, speak different languages, different institutions. And the more, you know, you don't, don't always do it the, the way that your institution does it. So uh, the more diversity in, in all these different aspects. Uh, I, yeah, I would I, say one thing, uh, Brad, that this book is, is intentionally diverse. The group is very diverse uh, and not not only in, in ethnicity, but also in geography, the specialties that the women practice. I tried to, to make sure that there was a role model for hopefully for almost anybody who's reading the book. So that's something that I agree with, uh, Teresa, that you really need to bring many different groups together and many different ideas together. And, and we ask those leaders to be intentional about this, right. to, to look within and, and take a better understanding of kind of, you know, what the lay of the land is. And also to be cautious because just bringing us on a committee is, is nice, but if we don't have the power, I mean, and that's one of the, that's one of the issues is that a lot of times when you're looking around, oh, I got to diversify. Well, you pick that one brown face and that brown face gets on every single committee or that one woman gets on, you know, on every single committee. Well, okay, that, that's, that's a good start. How are they being reimbursed? How are they getting compensated for this? How, you know, how are their productivity going to be impacted? All of those things will make a big difference because if I'm going to all of these committees, so you have my representation, but it's cutting into my clinical time that means I'm taking a smaller paycheck home or it's cutting into my time with the family. So I'm getting grief on both sides. You know, those things have to be taken into consideration as well. 
Right. To your point you brought up earlier, right? Already spread thin if it's if it's those uh, female physicians that are in the mother role as well. And, you know, the work isn't necessarily divided equitable in equitably child care, equitably in many homes. And so, right, if you're then cutting into their income and also their ability to be promoted because those metrics are are looked at, then you need to make sure that that is being um taken into account, compensated for. Otherwise, you're just going to make their life even harder. So you want their help. You want them on these committees, on these panels. But you're, by doing so, you're making their life even harder. Not not the great greatest way to recruit. <laughs> and the other little thing is, is you know, I, I constantly hear, well, there aren't any. It's like, mm, no, you know what? It's not that they aren't there. It's that perhaps you need to to grow them. So encouraging your faculty or your 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 clinicians to participate in leadership programs give them that time i mean when i first joined one institution I, it was fabulous because my clinic director person said you need to attend this program it's every monday for three months every afternoon and i'm giving you that time and i didn't know about the program until he said that and i was like you know, this is great. I got to know the lay of the land. I got to know how the institution worked, but it was because he specifically pulled me aside and said, you need to do this and I will cover you. Um, and so finding those leadership programs, giving people opportunities to, to take on those, you know, to, to attend those kinds of programs and to look around a little bit so that they have some other you know, uh, networks that you may not have in your own institution. Absolutely. I didn't learn the term network until I, I went to, to a business school, but it was because I was a medical director at Student Health at UCLA, and it was my boss, just as Teresa was, as he suggested that I get an MBA so that I could expand the, the role that I had in, in the uh, organization. And that made all the difference that suddenly I, I learned that you need to network, you need to talk to people who are outside of your organization, and there are lots of opportunities and lots of options, which I think is um, showcased in this book that, you know, outside of clinical practice, there are a lot of opportunities to influence medicine and quality of care um, that you might not have known about if you if you didn't read about some of these stories. Well, and one other little quickie thing, too, is understand my male colleagues, understand your own bias and that sometimes when you're trying to be nice and helpful, it can actually not. <laughs> So, so let me just give you a quick example, a very, very well-rounded, career-minded woman physician was coming to interview. She had grants. She, I mean, she was young, but she had, she's double boarded. She has grants. She's doing a very subspecialty kind of area. Everybody thought she was fabulous. She sits down with one of the leaders and, and he tells her, you know, you know, this is all very good and everything, but I'm concerned that you might have difficulty with this position because you have a husband and two little kids and your husband's in medicine. And she was just floored by that. And we spoke about it later. And it's like, you've already done all of this stuff. You're so accomplished. And somebody now is worried while your husband works too. That's, that's going to be tough on you. <laughs> and you wouldn't have gotten here if you, you know, if that was going to be an issue. Oh my goodness. So, but I, I'm sure that 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 leader was thinking, trying to be nice and empathetic, but she ended up clearly not taking the job. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. You know, you, you, you're getting, you can get an earful, but let's talk about the positive things, the positive things that the, the folks that, that Deb put in this book, I mean, you don't even have to sit and read it from cover to cover. I've just been giving it to my female medical students and saying, you know, just when you're feeling like I need a little oomph, when you're feeling like, why am I doing this? Just pick a chapter and read it, you know, do a few pages to kind of like get you back on track. Yeah. Mentioned that you give it to your your female medical students, but if you look at the comments on Amazon, um, it it appears that the book, you know, I would look at a book like this and I'd be great, a, a book for physicians by physicians. But if you look at the comments in Amazon, that's not who a lot of the comments are coming from. They're coming from non physicians. So I, I thought that was really interesting. Why do you think it is that a book like this resonates with non physicians as well? I think because they're the lessons that these women have learned are universal. I think I, I just happened to look at the Amazon and I saw there were teachers, there were business people, there was a lawyer, I think, that wrote a comment. They all felt that even though they weren't physicians, that they learned a lot about how one has to navigate a career path, how some people have been able to manage uh, a personal and professional life and so on. So it was not, they are not lessons that are only for women physicians. I think that uh, there are lessons that anybody, male, female, any, any really, anybody who's, who's looking to to move up in their career can can learn. So I, I was quite uh, pleased to see that. We're all in this together. You know, right. When when we all rise up, we all succeed and we all do better, regardless exactly. of what profession you're in. Right. Yeah. What do you think the impact that of, of COVID on some of the women leaders in this book? Yeah, well, I was uh, a little hesitant to have people write about COVID, but it turned out that everybody did because somehow their positions had uh, become just much larger. And many of them went back into who were not doing clinical medicine, but let's say we're just we're doing more administration, suddenly went back on the front lines. Obviously, those that had children ended up having to take more of the responsibility whether that should be the case or not, but they did. They took more of the responsibility for, for their child care in terms of homeschooling, elder care. So um, it really expanded their roles. And I think it also um, showcased some of the inequities in the healthcare system itself. So that one in particular was Tracy uh, Thompson, and she has now uh, left managed care to start her own community health center, which I thought was really interesting for minority and underserved uh, population. So that, that was an interesting uh, sort of side effect of, of COVID. And if if any one of the listeners are interested in doing that themselves, we have a previous episode with the host of the podcast, Melanin in Medicine. She helps particularly uh, female minority physician, minoritized physicians to execute on something like that. So check out, if you're interested, inspired by that, check out uh, Melanin yeah. in Medicine. Sorry, I just have to plug one of my colleagues. Oh, Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. That's, that's, that sounds great. Yeah. We, we all, we all need that. I mean, early in COVID, it's interesting. We put together a little group, a virtual group, just to kind of chat. It was a women in medicine at one of the institutions. And we ended up writing a couple of articles about the difficulties with COVID. One of them was as a physician, if we weren't on the front lines, we felt really guilty about that. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, if I wasn't, if I wasn't in the ICU helping, you know, how else could I be useful? And, and it was, it was really an interesting discussion, 
But we also use that time to kind of redirect our promotions committee to say, everybody's going to be influenced by this pandemic and you know research isn't being done and clinical time is increased and everything so how can we kind of restructure the promotions committee um rules and regulations for those folks and so we're at least able to make some changes so that the clock didn't keep ticking and that you got credit for some of the the smaller things that you're doing whether it was you know, running a podcast or we would have Zoom meetings once a week on new things that were coming up about COVID and how to interact with patients. And, you know, so running something like that, that was useful, even though it wasn't going to be publishable, you know, so finding other ways of getting credit for some of the, the social media things that you were doing could also be, would, was also another, an interesting little twist in what kind of came out from from the pandemic and and having to kind of think on your feet and find new ways of being successful. Right. And I think a lot of people, both male and female physicians, I think, took time out to reassess their their goals in terms of career path and so on. And what uh, I think people in general were doing that, but certainly the doctors that I've talked to said that that was this was a time to really rethink uh, careers and priorities. Myself included, myself included. Right. This, is, this has really been a, a great discussion. So how can people find the book? So the book is Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Physician Leaders. So how can people find the book and find you all online? Uh, the publisher is the American Association for Physician Leaders, and they are, you can buy the book from them. It is on Amazon, I think Barnes and Noble, so it's online that way. And um, I have a, uh, I guess I have a website that is uh, schleinbooks.com. Uh, I'm happy to talk to anyone through that. There is a way to get in touch with me. And, and the American Medical Women's Association is www.amwa.doc.org. And I certainly would encourage folks to check it out and consider being members. We, the more physician members we have, the stronger our voice. And we, we, we don't just have women members. We have got, my husband's a lifetime member. He calls himself the first gentleman since I'm reprising my president year. So, um, <laughs> but, but certainly having that collegiality, having that networking, being able to work on areas that you know, you're interested in and you're passionate about, we need you. Um, and, and being a part of a, a group that's bigger than yourself, it can be really incredibly useful, especially when you're when you're in your little microcosm of your own institution and you think that, you know, this is the way it is. And then you meet with some other folks and you realize, ah, no, it doesn't have to be that way. There are Absolutely. some other options. Right. Absolutely. I think AMWA is a fantastic organization for women uh, to to form a posse, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> with our male counterparts to, uh, to, right, to, right. to help us along. Right. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and for all the important work that you're doing, Dr. Deborah Schlein and Dr. Teresa Rohr Kirchgraber. Thank, thank you so you. much, Brad. Enjoyed Appreciate it. it, Brad. Thanks. Thank you. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.